Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Today, of course, the health and economic crisis. I'll look at the economic dimensions of the thing first. Then David Himmelstein, a Physicians for a National Health Program, will explain how he got to the point of lacking so many aspects of a basic health infrastructure. And Helen Yaffe will talk about how Cuban interferon is helping the fight against the disease in China. And what the Cuban health system looks like more generally. First, my words on the crisis. We're actually facing two crises at once, health and economic, that are related in very important ways. The COVID-19 epidemic has done major damage around the world, but is highlighting some serious structural problems with the U.S. social model that better-run countries are not quite so afflicted by. We are plagued by a deep economic polarization complicated by minimal social protections, severely diminished state capacity with eroded institutional structures and an extremely debased quality of personnel at the highest levels, years of underinvestment in basic infrastructure, both broadly and in healthcare particularly, and decades of neoliberal policies that have shaped a common sense based on competitive individualism with little sense of social solidarity. That's the longer-term context in which we face this acute crisis, To recover, we will need to do many things, both short and long term. To deal with the health crisis, we obviously need testing kits and rapid mobilization to build hospitals, ICUs, and ventilators. It may be that because of long-standing funding priorities of the U.S. government, it will take the Army to do some of it, but if that's our only option, we have to go for it. But it's still not enough. If China can build hospitals in 10 days, there's no reason we can't. It's nice Trump is deploying a couple of Navy hospital ships, but that's only a start. But I'll leave more detailed plans for the health emergency to people who know the field. My expertise is in politics, economics, and finance, and I want to make several points about those angles. The financial crisis is real and potentially devastating. There are some people on the left who doubt the wisdom of saving the banking system, but to let it collapse would be to repeat the mistakes of 1929 to 32, when a cascade of thousands of bank failures magnified a downturn into a Great Depression. Actions like the Federal Reserve's repos and securities purchases are a bare minimum to prevent a replay of the slide into depression 90 years ago. It's important to point out that all these trillions are not taxpayer money. It's money created out of thin air by the Fed. That's not a long-term funding strategy for the government, but it's important right now. The Fed is doing several things. A lot of the moves are so-called repurchase agreements. The details are a bit complicated for radio, but the simple explanation is that banks say to the Fed, here are some treasury bonds we've got lying around, lend us some cash against them. If the banks don't pay the loans back when they come due, the Fed keeps the bonds. They're also buying treasury and mortgage securities outright to boost the bank's cash levels. Again, not with taxpayer money, but magic money. But I share the frustration with how the Fed is spending trillions in an effort to restore the status quo before this latest crisis. That's what happened in 2008-2009. Extraordinary measures were undertaken, but they left the long-term causes of that crisis like income polarization and unregulated financial buccaneering unaddressed. Stronger measures are called for this time. Here are some ideas. Nationalize several of the largest banks, and unlike the nationalizations in Sweden in the 1990s and the UK a decade ago, they should not be undertaken with the idea of returning them to private ownership as quickly as possible after the government eats the losses. They should be run on entirely different principles. Shareholders will whine, but without a state-led rescue, the value of their stock would fall to zero anyway. 
There's no reason the nationalized banks couldn't be run to finance, for example, the Green New Deal. Some of the Green New Deal would have to be financed with traditional tax and bond finance public spending, but there's no reason these socialized banks couldn't participate. Nationalize the oil and gas sector, undertaken with the idea of putting them out of business. Because the price of oil has fallen so dramatically, the value of the major carbon producers is cratered. In other words, it would be quite affordable to socialize and extinguish the carbon sector. Unlike earlier crises of the last few decades, this one is not centered in the financial sector. While finance will suffer serious losses in a sharp downturn, the goal of policy should be to prevent catastrophic failure. But it's unlikely that those financial measures will provide even the modest stimulus quantitative easing did during and just after the 2008 crisis. This is a real sector crisis, which requires a much more fiscally centered approach. The federal government must provide people with income support as they lose their jobs. It's distressing that Republicans like Trump and Romney are talking about sending every American a check for $1,000, while House Speaker Nancy Pelosi shot down a similar suggestion from former economic advisor Jason Furman days earlier. This is a bare minimum. Unemployment insurance must be expanded, as must Medicaid, to take care of people who are about to lose their employer-provided health insurance. But only a half to two-thirds of the unemployed are eligible for benefits these days. Merely expanding unemployment insurance, as Schumer and other Dems want to do, won't be adequate. It's also terrible politics to look chintzier than the Republicans. A thousand dollar checks for a month or two aren't much, but they're a lot better than nothing, and it's politically idiotic to oppose them. Longer term, we need to invest in the physical and social infrastructure of this country. For decades, civilian public investment, meaning net of depreciation, has hovered just above zero. We're doing little better to replace things as they decay. This abstract economic statistic can easily be confirmed just by walking around anywhere in the U.S. outside our richest neighborhoods. We need a massive investment in public infrastructure on the model of the New Deal, thus the Green New Deal, both to fight the slump and to make this country habitable for the bottom 80 to 90 percent of the population. Longer term, never has the need for Medicare for all been so clear. And the reason for that isn't only the need of freeing people from the anxiety of not being able to pay for essential care, but also because there's little in the way of planning for the distribution of healthcare resources beyond what the market demands. A major part of the reason the U.S. is so unprepared to handle this crisis is that hospitals are built and outfitted according to where the money is, not where the needs are. Hospital and rural areas are broken closing, and recently a hospital in Philadelphia that served a largely poor clientele was closed because it stood on land that developers would prefer to turn into condos. We'll hear more on this from David Himmelstein. This is a terrifying moment with sickness, death, and imminent destitution haunting all of us. Things could get very ugly. But it's also an opportunity to emerge in this crisis a better country. Over the last few decades, neoliberalism has encouraged a consciousness of self-reliance and individualism. We need to articulate a vision of solidarity and mutual care. Millions of lives, indeed the future of life on Earth, depend on that. Okay, on to voices other than mine. Before we get to them, I should say my Skype was acting up and caused audio dropouts every 2 minutes and 52 seconds. I have no idea why, but you'll hear some brief glitches in what follows. David Himmelstein, along with his political and life partner Steffi Woolhandler, is a national treasure. The two of them have been pushing for single-payer health care for years through an organization they co-founded, Physicians for a National Health Program. They've written extensively on the hideous waste and brutality of our healthcare system. I could think of no one better to explain how we got here than either David or Steffi, and when I called, David picked up the phone. Aside from that work, he's a professor at the CUNY School of Public Health, Hunter College in New York. David Himmelstein. How did we get to the point where we have so few hospital beds, so few ICUs, so few ventilators? Is this accident 
or policy or some combination of both? Well, we, we depend on the market to uh, allocate ICU beds and hospital beds and hospitals generally. So there are parts of the country that have uh, ample supply of those beds and ICUs and other parts that are deserts. And basically where it's profitable to put stuff in place, those things exist. And where it's not profitable, they don't. And there's been no planning to try and address what would happen in case of a disaster because planning is left to the market in our healthcare system. I was under the impression that there was some effort to reduce the number of hospital beds, shorten hospital stays and reduce hospital beds um, over the last couple of decades. Is that the case? Yeah, so there's been this ideology that the problem of why we spend so much money is because Americans spend so much time in the hospital. Um, so starting about oh, 30 years ago, there's been a push to um, try and empty hospitals. And some of that's good. I mean, if you don't need to be in a hospital, you probably shouldn't be in a hospital. But some of it has just meant sending people home quicker and sicker or sending them out to nursing homes um, for the last part of their stay. And it actually hasn't saved money. I mean, what what's happened is the hospitals have ratcheted up their prices and they're spending fewer dollars on the on the last couple of days of a hospital admission when it's cheap, but they're ratcheting up their prices prices for the first days and and um, they're drawing their profits out of, out of that. So the it's been a colossal failure the attempt to save money by pushing down the amount of hospital care. In fact, uh, most other countries have more hospital care than we do. I mean, the Canadians, and uh, they're not rushed out nearly as fast, but their hospital costs are much lower. And uh, what about the number of doctors per capita? How do we stack up there? We're towards the low end, but not an outlier. And frankly, we're not an outlier in terms of the number of ICU beds, though we are an outlier in terms of the number of, of hospital beds overall. It's been pretty profitable to have patients in ICUs the way they've set it up. So the ICU bed numbers have have stayed pretty high in the U.S. relative to most other countries, but they're terribly maldistributed. So there are parts of the country that have seven, seven times as many ICU beds per capita as other parts of the country. So we'll have shortages in particular, particularly parts of the country where there are a lot of Medicaid and uninsured patients. What about the financial state of the hospitals generally? I think many of them are like closing in, in fairly feeble shape, aren't they? Well, it's um, like the rest of the economy, a, a contrast between the rich and the poor. So there are hospitals that have been making record profits. Several of the big New York hospitals have made uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in profits. I mean, they're nonprofit hospitals, but they, they call them surpluses. What do they do with that money if they don't have to distribute it to shareholders? Do they just keep it or what? Well, some gets distributed in outrageous salaries and incomes to the executives, and some gets passed along to the um, contractors and often like board members get sweetheart deals for their companies. The rest gets plowed back into the institution, but not for what's needed. It's basically for what the institution's think is going to be profitable next year. So I know the Boston situation better than the New York situation. Massachusetts General Hospital has just announced a a new billion-dollar building that they're going to build 
I mean, they, they almost have the cash on hand to build it. And they're going to put it in a place where there's no need for any additional resources. There's already uh, ample hospital capacity there. I, I would think that Boston is one of the most over-hospitaled cities in the country, isn't it? It is, and particularly the parts of Boston where um, Massachusetts General and our other parts of Boston um, where there's not much in the way of hospital resources. And, of course, that's not where they're being invested. And then there are big swaths of the country where hospitals are closing, either because there are not enough profitable patients to be served there, and that's rural areas particularly, or because they're sitting on valuable real estate. So one of the big... Uh, hospitals that served a lot of poor people in in Philadelphia, uh, Hahnemann um, was sitting on a, a valuable piece of real estate, and they closed the hospital to basically turn it into condos. We think. What is the regime that regulates hospitals, if at all? Is it like state by state? Is there a national entity? I think Medicare and Medicaid um, has a substantial um, policy making role. How, who's responsible for this sector ultimately? Well, there's there's no one responsible for the sector nationally. So in order to bill Medicare, you have to be certified, basically pass inspection from a private company. And by the way, the agency that does the inspections has a side business in consulting with hospitals how to pass their inspection. So they make a lot of their income selling their consulting services to tell hospitals how to cheat on the inspection. But once you're certified by that agency, you can bill Medicare and Medicaid. And then within states, some states have what's called certificate of need programs that say to hospitals, if you want to invest to build new facilities and open new stuff, you need to get permission. But it's like once you already have the money, you go to get the permission. And they rarely turn down the permission for places that already have the money to build. And those are are essentially the profitable hospitals. So there's not been over the last 30 years in this country anything approaching planning for where hospitals ought to be. New York State has been more stringent than most. The governor had a commission that said uh, we need to close down a bunch of hospitals, but um, they've not limited the the rich hospitals from from building and growing. What they've done is closed down the poor hospitals, often serving poor communities in, in the state. But, I mean, to, to go back to your original question, th- there's no rational health planning in this country. The market is rational, though, right? Rational according to making sure resources go to where they're profitable. I was struck by, uh, you're saying uh, that uh, Mass General is going to spend a billion dollars in a new building. I mean, you could really build a hospital in a Quonset hut if you needed to. I mean, this is, uh, it's not necessary to have a billion dollar building for a hospital, is it? Um, depends on exactly what you want to build. And they want to build a luxury facility with all the latest high-tech gadgets and um, attract uh, wealthy patients. So for that, you need to go high-end and Many other places around the country are doing similar things. I mean, we have this regime which basically has separated off the building and and investment from um, any concept of where it's needed. And um, once you have the money to build, it often makes sense to, to spend a lot of money on it because that's the way you attract the more profitable patients. And how to say, the Canadians do these things? 
The Canadians say if you have a surplus left over at the end of the year, if you're a hospital, you can't use it to build your next building. And that's an indication that your hospital is being paid too much and next year's budget should be cut. If you want to build a new building or invest in new facilities as a Canadian hospital, basically you go to the provincial health insurance program and you ask for a grant to build the building. And the provincial health insurance programs get the applications from all the places in the province that want to build new stuff, and they prioritize where it should go and where it shouldn't go. So there's been a fair amount of rationalization uh, of those services. And often that doesn't just assure they're where they're needed, but it also improves the quality of care. So, you know, at one point in Boston, we, we had five hospitals doing heart transplants, and none were doing enough to be good at that procedure. But that was something that was a profitable procedure, so all the big hospitals wanted to do it. Whereas if we'd had some rational distribution of those facilities, we would have had each one that was doing heart transplants doing enough to be good at it. That would have been better for the patients, saved money because you wouldn't have had investment in facilities that weren't needed. And uh, switching to more topical events, um, Joe Biden said in Sunday's debate that Italy has a single-payer system and they're doing no better than we are, and so that's just not the solution to anything. What do you say to that? Well, Medicare for All or single-payer isn't the solution to every part of this epidemic. No Italian worries about can they afford the care that they need or, or are getting hit with a bill because care is completely free there. So they've solved that part of it. They've devolved some of the um, health planning to smaller regions, and that's actually been a problem, and we need to avoid that under a Medicare for All system. So they've moved to a kind of a quasi-market in the decision-making about where hospitals should be built, and that was a mistake in Italy. We shouldn't repeat that mistake here. But, I mean, we're going to need Medicare for All more than ever after this or as this epidemic goes on, millions of people are in the in the course of losing their jobs and losing their health insurance. And the best Congress has been able to do up till now is to say we're going to have free testing. But if your test comes up positive, even if you're insured, you're likely to be stuck with with huge medical bills. And we have an avalanche of newly uninsured people about to happen. So Medicare for all for that reason, is needed more than ever. And for the health planning that it would make possible, uh, it's needed more forever than ever. But we also need broader changes in our healthcare system and in our society. I mean, we've underinvested in public health. The Canadians spend 6% of their total health spending on public health. We spend about 2.5% of our health spending on public health, and that's been going down. So we've lost... Uh, about 50,000 frontline public health workers in the last decade in this country. And those are the people who are needed to try and deal with this epidemic. They're the folks who, who do the contact tracing and figure out who's been in contact with someone who's infected and then say that's who needs to be isolated. That's how we need to slow down this this uh, epidemic. And We've starved the public health system over a generation now, 
um, again, because markets allocate our resources in healthcare and public health, there's not been a market for. And it's both been Republicans and Democrats who've cut public health funding. I'm speaking with David Himmelstein of Physicians for a National Health Program. What kind of activities are you talking about, uh, aside from what you just mentioned, uh, the, the contact tracing and such? What kinds of activities should we be investing more in uh, in the public health area? Public health does does stuff like monitoring food safety and, and um, occupational health problems, you know, safety in workplaces. In non-epidemic times, they do contact tracing for sexually transmitted diseases, hepatitis, HIV, and um, trying to help connect folks to care who need it. They monitor the safety of water systems and sewage systems. So it's all the stuff that's not done by doctors and nurses out of hospitals and doctor's offices, but actually is probably at least as important, maybe more important to the society um, in terms of saving lives than than what doctors and, and nurses otherwise do. And we've cut 20% of that capacity since 2008. Uh, and then, you know, the, the Trump administration takes also some of the blame. They uh, put in a hiring freeze immediately after Trump assumed office that left 700 positions unfilled at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Um, so that's weakened that agency. They moved the stockpile of, of uh, emergency medical supplies out of a competent agency and into an incompetent one. So we have no idea whether those emergency stockpiles, so-called strategic national stockpile of pharmaceuticals and medical supplies, has been effectively maintained. And, of course, the, the administration refused the World Health Organization's offer of coronavirus testing kits. We could have tested millions of people already known who was infected, put in place some measures to keep them away from people who are, were not infected, and slowed the spread of this disease. But the jingoism of this administration and the America Firstness um, probably has cost thousands of lives already. Yeah, I, I don't understand why it's so hard to get these test kits. I mean, it's not like a complicated piece of machinery. Why is it? Uh... Why are they in such scarce supply? Any other sources besides the World Health Organization? Well, the World Health Organization was working from a, a test kit as I, the U.S. took a long detour. It takes some time to get together the, the test kits once you've invented them. But the WHO had a, a six-week head start on the U.S., and then the U.S. was delayed even further because the CDC basically screwed up and in making their original test kit. So it takes time to put together big supply of these things, but um, the rest of the world was on it and we weren't. What now? I mean, we're getting some test kits, um, but we're way, way behind the curve. Um, how full of despair should we be? Hard to know, but I mean, things things look very serious, like we're headed for very difficult times, both medically and, of course, economically depends really on how effective the isolation measures are. If people really do strictly adhere to staying away from from their neighbors and from potential sources of infection, we may slow this thing down enough to not be a huge disaster. I fear that we're headed towards something really bad with uh, many millions of people being severely ill. 
and our hospitals and and medical facilities not able to keep up with it. At this point, what we need to be doing is trying to isolate and um, and take care and to be moving forward on the social protections that people will need urgently when the epidemic finally does come down. There are going to be millions of people without health insurance, millions of people without jobs and incomes, lots of businesses closed, and our society really not functioning. So the question is, can we use that as an opportunity to say, let's move ahead, not backward? And what do you make of the Boris Johnson approach, the herd immunity, let everybody get sick and hope it all works out? I think that's a recipe for disaster. Everybody getting sick at the same time is certain to overwhelm the healthcare system. It's on a par with Boris Johnson's other ideas. <laughs> they do have a healthcare system unlike us. His compadres have done everything they can to undermine over the last uh, 30 years, starting with Margaret Thatcher. In fact, there was recently revealed a quote from um, the head of the National Health Service under Thatcher about that their plan was really to starve the healthcare system, undermine it, and privatize it. Uh, that was never admitted at the time, but um, that internal memo has now come out, and they've largely done that in the UK. They've terribly weakened their system. So the uh, the Anglo-American Compact, a special relationship, has uh, many dimensions. Uh, yeah, they're they're not quite at our level yet in their healthcare system, but they're trying to head there, and they've been moving to make profitability the distributor of resources even within their public system. As somebody who's been working uh, for a uh, single payer for decades, what do you think of the prospects now? I mean, for a while, when Sanders was surging, one felt some degree of optimism, but uh, now it's likely that Biden's going to get the nomination, and uh, I think he'll probably win, beat Trump, but who knows. But um, w what do you think of the prospects for it now politically? You know, hard, hard to know. I, I think the current epidemic is uh, likely to, to stimulate even more calls for single-payer national health insurance because it's going to reveal how horrendously weak the health care financing system is, and it's going to leave even more people out, out to dry. So I think the push from the populace is going to increase, and the question is whether the Democrats can be pushed to respond to it or will the corporate interests that have always opposed it continue to to win out in this one. I, I'm guardedly hopeful that uh, this destabilization can actually move us forward. That was David Himmelstein, co-founder of Physicians for a National Health Program and professor of health policy at Hunter College in New York City. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break.
That was some of the Chacon from Bach's Partita No. 2 for solo violin, performed by Henrik Schering. I'm finding comfort in very old music these days. Next, the Cuban angle. There have been reports, met with skepticism by Cuba haters, that a strain of interferon developed by that country has been an effective agent for fighting COVID-19 in China. The haters need to get over it. Despite being a poor country, Cuba has a life expectancy a year longer than the U.S., and there's a lot to learn from them. Here to talk about the Cuban biotech industry specifically, and the health system more generally, is Helen Yaffe, lecturer in economic and social history at the University of Glasgow, and author of We Are Cuba, to be published in a few weeks by Yale University Press. I'll have her back soon to talk about the book. Helen Yaffe. There have been reports of uh, Cuban interferon doing uh, important work in fighting coronavirus in China. This has been met with uh, some skepticism from people who don't like Cuba very much. So tell us what's been going on. Just with this angle, not that we'll get to the Cuban biotech industry in a moment. Oh, right. Okay. So, um, yeah, I mean, I published an article about Cuba's uh, interferon alpha 2b. And a few people have got back to me saying, oh, well, you know, on Wikipedia, it doesn't say it was, you know, discovered by Cuba, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, there has been a lot of, um, as you say, censorship and misinformation um, and um, some of it's. Uh, on purpose and some of it uh, out of ignorance about Cuba's incredible medical science developments. Um, for example, meningitis B vaccine was discovered by Cuba in a situation of great desperation and need because they had a meningitis B vaccine um, B outbreak which had killed a lot of Cubans and uh, they were, you know, pulled their, all their resources and their specialists together. Um, an incredible team that worked intensively to have a meningitis B vaccine. And yet, a few years ago, when the British government introduced the first meningitis B vaccine, some 30 years later, um, and introduced it into the National Health Service here, only for under ones at that point, um, they declared it was the first ever use of meningitis B vaccine in the world. So um, this sort of misinformation or dismissal in terms of interferon alpha 2b has precedent. I mean, it's been the norm. Um, would you like me to tell you the story of the interferons and how the Cubans developed them? Uh, well, no, let's, let's just, uh, if we can, uh, what, what, what's the extent of the, um, the, the work in China before we just go on to the larger story? Okay, so the Cubans developed interferon alpha 2b, this antiviral drug, which has proven to be very useful, it seems, with the COVID-19 outbreak. They developed it in 1986. In 2003, they had a government-to-government agreement um, with China, and they set up a joint venture, which was called Chang Herber. Um, and one of the principal products that it was set up to produce was interferon alpha 2b but there was a whole uh, array of other products that were being introduced and uh, i think some 10 years later a new more modern facility was opened in a different place in china so the chinese have been producing with cuba the antiviral drug for many years and when the outbreak of covid-19 happened in wuhan it began very late in December. And by late January, the Chinese National Health Service had selected 30 antiviral drugs to adopt in its system to combat COVID-19. And one of them was Cuban interferon 
alpha 2b. So the claim is not that it's the only drug that can help, but so far the results are that that particular antiviral drug is proving to be um, very effective in this virus. I mean, it has, you know, you have to recognize that it has a, a long history. It's been trialed and tested um, and it's proven its effectiveness in um, similar sorts of conditions, including uh, things like hepatitis B and C and even in HIV and AIDS uh, and also to an extent in cancer as well. So um, shingles it's helped with and dengue, which was the um, original health condition or the original um, problem that the Cubans developed it to combat. Okay, so now let's step back. The, the history of Cuban biotech, um, they were there pretty early uh, by world standards, right? Yeah, I mean, in terms of Cuba's role in the biotech sector, it is the first time in history that uh, entered a developing emerging sector right at the beginning of its outset. Um, and the story of that actually is about the story of how they first came to develop interferon. I mean, the background is obviously the incredible um, state investments in both education and healthcare, because obviously you need the education system to get the critical mass of um, medical scientists and uh, medics and healthcare professionals in general. Um, so you have that as a background. And then in there was a, a, a particular scenario which led to them developing inter interferon. Let me just say that just for listeners who don't know what interferons are, they are signaling proteins which are produced and released by host cells in the body in response to pathogens. So viruses, bacteria, parasites and tumor cells. And the role that they have is to alert nearby cells to heighten their defences, their defence from this pathogen. Um, interferons were first discovered that they existed in 1957 by two scientists working in London. They were doing work on viral interference. Um, and then in the 1960s, a US researcher in Paris showed that interference could um, stimulate lymphocytes that attack tumours in mice. So they, it was seen that they could possibly be useful for cancer as well. In the 1970s, there was a US oncologist, Randolph Clark Lee, who'd taken up this research. And he caught on to the tail end of the slight improvement of relations between Cuba and the United States under Jimmy Carter's presidency and joined a delegation um, to visit Cuba's healthcare facilities in the 90, late 1970s. And during the trip, he met with Fidel Castro, who was asking him, what is the latest developments? What is the promising drugs in terms of cancer? And he talked about interferon and said and convinced Fidel Castro that this was the wonder drug. He offered to take one researcher in his own laboratory in the US, one Cuban researcher, and Fidel Castro persuaded him to take two. So they went there and they started to get gather the information, the research had been done. And also through uh, Clark, they made contact with someone called Carrie Cantell, who was a, a doctor in Finland, who in that um, 1970s had isolated interferon from human cells. And he had not patented the procedure for doing so because he had a commitment to global public health. So he invited some Cubans to go and work with him in March 1981 with him in his laboratory, learning how to produce large quantities of interferon. 
And they were um, the first generation of medical scientists who were trained entirely under the revolution um, of 1959. They returned in April, so um, not long after they returned and moved into um, a, an old mansion that had belonged to a, you know someone before the revolution, and it was converted into an interferon laboratory, it became known as the House 149. And they set to work immediately to produce their own Cuban version of interferon. And it took them just 45 days, which was incredibly quick, concentrated work. Uh, their interferon was uh, verified for quality in Carrie Cantel's laboratory. And it turned out to be just in time because a few weeks later, Cuba was struck by an epidemic of dengue which is a disease transmitted by mosquitoes. But interestingly, this was a particularly virulent strand which can trigger life-threatening dengue, um, hemographic haggic fever. Sorry for mispronouncing that word. It's the first time it had appeared in the Americas. Um, and the epidemic struck 340,000 Cubans, 11,000 new cases diagnosed every day at its peak. Uh, 101 children died, 180 people overall. The Cubans suspected that the CIA had released um, the virus onto the island. The US State Department denied it. But I have to say that a recent investigation using bioinformatic uh, processes by the Cubans, um, they believe that they have confirmed that this is what happened. Now, of course, the Cubist skeptics will say, you know, of course, of course, they're going to say that. But, um, you know, the, the long history of U.S. activity against Cuba makes this not at all incredible. Well, it wouldn't be the first act of um, the only act of bi uh, biological warfare against Cuba. There's been swine fevers and all sorts of stuff where, you know, the archives exist. I mean, I teach Latin American history and Actually, it's it's a sort of normal modus operandi for the CIA is is um, quite incredible acts of uh, terrorism, really, against populations, whether it's economic or the applica uh, application of sanctions or, um, you know, helping to organize coups or supporting right wing governments uh, and dictatorships. So anyway, the point is that they had this outbreak. They had the interferon. The public health system, you know, because medical science institutions are also publicly owned. So there's a lot of uh, excellent, very fast. And they decided to use the interferon for the dengue outbreak and immediately saw um, the benefits, its impact in terms of uh, reducing cases and reducing severity. So that, that is when they began to work on the interferon. Um, they then took innovative turns with that research. They cloned it in yeast, and, and that led to the interferon alpha-2b recombinant uh, vaccine, which is being used now, which has been produced in Cuba since 1986. I'm speaking with Helen Yaffe, lecturer in economic and social history at the University of Glasgow and author of the imminently forthcoming We Are Cuba. So now this is part of a, a larger uh, a very ambitious uh, and advanced pharmaceutical sector, considering what a poor country Cuba is to have this level of uh, biotechnological sophistication is uh, quite impressive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the research that I did for my book, and I have a whole chapter on the curious case of Cuba's biotech revolution, um, shows that 
uh, biotechnology was given a priority position in um, their development strategy in Cuba from the 1980s, uh, when most underdeveloped or developing countries didn't have access to any of the new technologies, um, the Cubans were uh, really ahead of the game. They set up something called the Biological Front in 1981. So that became, that was the root, in a sense, of all the um, biotech institutions that grew up out of that. Um, and that received uh, like a billion dollars in the 1980s. Um, that was only six years, actually, sorry, five years after the first biotech company was set up in the United States. And the second biotech company was only set up in 1980. So we're, one year later, the Cubans essentially had a, a forum for developing biotechnology well before most of the world. Now, the interesting thing is in the 1990s, Cuba has to confront this severe economic crisis with the collapse of the Soviet bloc. And it is devastating for the economy. A 35% fall in GDP, they lose 86% of their imports and exports. They're struggling to get food, to get oil. I mean, oil imports, you know, 90% is eliminated. There's blackouts, infrastructure crumbles, everything's tumbling down. And in that period, or known as the special period, um, Fidel Castro insisted that the the investment in biotechnology would remain. And another, you know, 1.5% of GMP was invested in biotechnology, which was an incredibly risky decision to take. But I think, you know, today we can see that it was, has borne. I mean, Cuba now produces almost 70% of the medicines that are consumed domestically. Now, given the context of the United States blockade, which we should all know includes food and medicine, as well as educational equipment and cultural links and so on, that has been really important for the health and well-being of the Cuban people. The larger Cuban health system, I imagine they have some sort of a comprehensive national health uh, care system, but what does that look like exactly? Well, I mean, Cuba has more doctors per person in anywhere, than anywhere in the world. And their approach to healthcare is um, that prevention is better than cure. But the other interesting approach of their healthcare is they don't separate the sort of medical diagnostics from an assessment of people's social envir and environmental factors. So they have a biosocial environmental approach to medicine. They have an incredible system of family doctors. So the number of doctors per people is so high because everybody has access to a family doctor on more or less each street, each area. And the doctors, family doctors are open in the morning to receive patients and in the afternoon they do home visits. And this is where the approach of considering the uh, medical situation of an individual within the framework of their social and environmental uh, factors is so important. So they visit their patients, they check how they are, they look at other additional problems they may have, like fridges not working, which means they can't keep food fresh or whatever it is. Then they have a secondary system, which is a system of polyclinics where you would go for um, small treatments, uh, minor surgery and other consultations. And then finally, they have the hospital system. But when you consider that at the time of the revolution or in the 
the months and years following, um, Cuba was reduced to not much over 3,000 doctors um, and very few hospitals. And essentially, healthcare in the rural areas was non-existent. There was some possibility of getting some treatment for poorer people in Havana on a charitable basis and so on. But it was very difficult to get any access to healthcare. And today, the other aspect of Cuban healthcare is it's not concentrated around the island. Um, and their focus has been to treat people in their communities. So this is one of the benefits of their approach in terms of biotechnology. They um, have worked a lot with immunotherapies. So recently they have had breakthroughs with cancer immunotherapies, which were a very difficult nut to crack and others had not been successful. And one of the benefits of this is that this provides treatment that can be delivered by an injection in a local or rural hospital without uh, requiring patients to travel into big cities and go into um, expensive, uh, technologically complex hospital scenarios. So it, it's also um, very much cheaper to deliver and it can be delivered for people in their own communities. And they export a lot of doctors too, right? Uh, well, Venezuela, Africa. Um, this is uh, they, they they spread their wealth, uh, their medical wealth around the world. Yeah, I mean they have an incredible record. Something like four hundred thousand Cuban healthcare professionals have worked overseas. Um, and initially, this was in response to emergencies or to support um, struggling, you know, public healthcare systems. It was acts of solidarity. Sometimes they sent people to countries, many times I should say, they sent people to countries where they didn't even have diplomatic relations with the government or had quite hostile relations with the government. But it was an act of solidarity, not concerned about the government, but concerned about the populations affected by whatever um, health crisis had happened. Subsequently, they got in a situation with the exchange of oil for doctors with Venezuela, where uh, it was clear that this could also be a source of revenues for, for the Cubans. And, um, you know, we have to remember the context that the United States blockade of Cuba means that uh, their options in terms of economic engagement with the world are limited because the U.S. pursues. It doesn't just stop its own U.S. trade with Cuba. It also attempts to persecute um, any other countries or individuals in third, part, third countries who are trading with Cuba. Now, there was some hostile coverage at the time, as I recall, uh, that these uh, doctors uh, were being pressed into service and uh, woefully underpaid, essentially drafted so the state could make some money off them. What about that? The Cuban government receives the payment that has been agreed by the host company, uh, country if that is the contract that they are operating, operating under. There's about six different contracts that the Cubans um, operate under when they send medics abroad, including the, the free assistance. So the Cuban government takes the salaries and pays to the Cubans a small proportion of that. But this can only be understood within the framework of a, a socialist centrally planned economy. None of those doctors have paid a penny for any of their education. Now, if you think about the situation of doctors in the United States, 
I mean, you will know better than me that it's the, their education, medical education, is seen as an investment. It costs an awful lot of money. And the justification is that they then have to charge high salaries in order to be able to pay their debt. So Cuban doctors qualify, they graduate with no debt. But not only that, their children will then enter the edu Cuban education system and also graduate with no debt. 80, uh, I think it's 90% of Cubans own their own homes. So they're not burdened by the fear of eviction for non-payment, whether it's a mortgage or uh, rental. So yes, the salaries are low that the Cubans receive, but it is seen that their education, their passing through the system, their graduation is a social investment. And so the country should nationally benefit from that from that investment because that money is ploughed back into the same system from which they have benefited. Finally, all these Cuban drugs uh, which are uh, helping um, in China, I assume because of the U.S. embargo, uh, this is certainly not available in the U.S. Are any other countries uh, looking to it or is this uh, mostly a Chinese affair? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've read reports that something like 15 countries are currently um, requesting access to Cuba's interferon alpha-2b. Um, the other interesting story developing is that Cuba and China have sent medical specialists to Italy. Um, and there are people in Spain and France who are also clamoring and saying, we need A, we need this Cuban antiviral drug, and B, we need their, their ex medical expertise. So, you know, the Cubans have shown that they are prepared to go um, anywhere their healthcare workers are needed. During Hurricane Katrina, thousands of Cuban doctors gathered together in the airport in Havana with their backpacks ready with emergency equipment and um, ready to go at a moment's notice to leave their families behind and fly over to New Orleans and the other affected areas to provide emergency assistance to the people affected by Hurricane Katrina. And that offer was turned down. It was actually ignored um, Cuba wasn't even on the list of countries that had offered assistance um, produced by the, the president at that time. So, um, you know, I, I think this is this is something that people should be considering. If we know there is an effective antiviral drug, by no means the only, but the Cubans have the capacity with the Chinese to produce this en masse. Um, I mean, I think it's really something that, that we should be demanding access to. That was Helen Yaffe, a lecturer at the University of Glasgow and author of We Are Cuba, forthcoming from Yale University Press. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this, some more Bach, the Gigue, from his Partita Number no. 2, performed again by Henrik Schering. Till next week, bye. <laughs>